0: Erlon, I will never forget it.
1: Ear Hustle, stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it.
2: Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts.
3: Partly Cloudy Skies, welcome to this Monday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up in just a moment, conversations about this weekend's protests and what's next for the city of Atlanta.
4: What I know about Atlanta, even though it is the city too busy to hate, I think that's a a nice catchphrase, but (laughs) I don't know if that's the case. And I think if you talk to black folks here in Atlanta from all walks of life, they would tell you that that's not the case. And some of the things that they have gone through and continue to go through and, you know, the socioeconomic disparities that exist here and the racial disparities here and the health disparities here, we have to be mindful of making broad statements and, and characterizing this city as something that it may not have ever been for a large group of people based on their socioeconomic status, for sure, and their racial status as well.
3: That's coming up in just a moment. But first, the latest information, as always, as it relates to the coronavirus here in Georgia. As of 9 a.m. today, there are 47,496 confirmed COVID-19 cases. The number of deaths statewide is reported to be 2,055. And there are 8,033 hospitalized. Now, that's all according to the Georgia Department of Public Health, again, as of 9 a.m. today. In other related news, Georgia's bars and nightclubs can open starting today. Business owners must follow 39 state-mandated safety guidelines in order to reopen. And those guidelines include measures such as screening employees for COVID-19 and limiting capacity to 25 people or 35% of total occupancy. This is Closer Look. (music)
4: This is my city. And I'm deeply saddened what I'm looking at here today.
0: I saw this city take off when I was 18 years old in the 70s, when it began to really grow and prosper to where it is now. This is a major setback for Atlanta right here.
2: We people who are darker than blue.
0: and. All this can be rebuilt, but it's tarnished.
2: And let what others say come true.
3: We're just good. There is something different about this moment. I think a lot of our white brothers and sisters are starting to look in the mirror and ask themselves, like, okay, maybe I am a part of the problem.
1: Maybe
2: my silence is a part of the problem.
1: Atlanta has always been a strong city. We're different than other cities, you know? From here, exactly what you see today, we're already rebuilding our city. We're already taking care of each other. You know? Atlanta is a strong city, and I think from here we can just promote change. You're just the surface of our well.
2: If your mind could really see, you know your color the same as me.
3: For decades, longer than I've been alive, we've seen people unjustly killed, unjustly
1: jailed or oppressed, and it's finally come to a head. So the conversations that I had with my son late last night while we were watching this, and he was like, Dad, why are they destroying my city? And I paused for a moment and I said, son, people are angry, people are hurt, and they are acting out, but that's not the way to do it. And he was like, how do we do it? And I paused, and he was like, is it love? And my son is six year old. He, he's, he talked about love.
3: And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Voices from folks I spoke with this past Saturday afternoon. The day after what is now a historic turn of events for the city of Atlanta. This week on Closer Look, our conversations will solely be dedicated to this weekend's protests, the aftermath, and what's next, Atlanta, and conversations about turning initial outrage to actionable outcomes. We'll talk about 21st century protesting. Where's Atlanta's next wave of young leadership coming from? We'll talk about voting and race reconciliation. But we'll begin with Ilya Davis, director of New Students and Transition Programs and a professor of philosophy from Morehouse College. Also from Georgia State University, associate professor in African-American studies and the author of The Legend of the Black Mecca, Politics and Class and the Making of Modern Atlanta, Maurice Hobson. And also in Singer Burton, professor and multimedia journalist, who's also the co-director of film and media management at Emory University, and they all are regular contributors to Closer Look. Thank you all for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you
4: for, Thank you for having me.
3: Professor Burton, I'll start with you. Uh, just your reaction on all of the events that took place this weekend here in Atlanta.
4: Um, I think it's been really interesting um, looking at what people have been talking about on social media in terms of the responses and listening to the Um, audio that you played for us at the beginning of the show, at the top of the show, uh, there are a lot of mixed emotions, a lot of different types of feelings. Um, I think a lot of uh, people are disappointed in what has been happening. Um, uh, I think there's been a lot of blame placed on um, young kids of color, uh, which I don't think is necessarily truthful. Mm -hmm. Uh, and honest Um, and I do believe that there's been some revisionist thinking especially as it relates to this cradle of civil rights where we live Atlanta Georgia Um, Mm -hmm. in terms of what people prior to them prior to this movement and this moment uh, had to go through in order to get the change that was needed here Um, so you know it's been difficult to watch uh, the destruction of buildings but I think what's been more difficult to watch is the destruction of black bodies on videotape. Um, And I think that people need to remember how we got here. You know, it's horrible that we are here and this is what it's turned into. Um, But people need to remember how we got here. And uh, you know, sometimes nonviolence doesn't work. Sometimes turning the other cheek doesn't work. Sometimes passive measures do not work. Um, And when people are frustrated and don't have strategies and and ways uh, and tools for channeling that frustration, it often looks like this. during uprisings. Mm -hmm. And these are uprisings, these are not riots uh, as it relates to Black people. (laughs) As it relates to Black people. I don't know what some of these anarchists and stuff are doing, but for the Black folks, it's an uprising.
3: Professor Davis, your thoughts on this weekend's events?
1: Well, I've had difficulty just imagining what emotion I would allow to come forth. One of the most difficult things I've had to manage is I'm not so much angry as I am psychologically lethargic. I mean, it happens so frequently and the profundity of it is so overwhelming. I hate to say that I've gotten close to saying again, again, again. And I try not to allow it to be normalized for myself because that level of like, again, lethargy just should not settle in on one because it overwhelms you when it comes to a head, when you watch videos. Um, I did a little march with a group yesterday. Uh, it erupts, and sometimes I can understand how it erupts in destructive forms. And so for me, it's been very difficult trying to manage what I would think. And, and, the, and the problem has often been not conscious thoughts, but the unconscious wavering from anger to uh, dis decidedly against certain behaviors. How do you evaluate them? As the professor just said, how do you give an account of the pain and hurt that seems to somehow manifest itself in the destruction of private property? And I can understand how that happens. The difficulty again though, is how do you think about it? How do you wrap your mind around it such that you then include your own existential experiences, your children, your friends, your family. I'm from Atlanta. And so I guess I don't have the same familial attachment to the physical and material structures of Atlanta as I do to my communities. I grew up uh, in an environment that was very communally based, uh, the Stewart Avenue, Pittsburgh area. So I guess I have an affinity for that in ways that buildings and other material things that are insured. I think the, the fundamental issues have been undermined by people trying to focus on the destruction of private property. And so all this is going through my mind as I observe and I'm saying to myself, how do you evaluate the pain and suffering and the trauma of a people such that when you give an account of it, it's reduced to the things and the material things of the world. And I think that's going to be a fundamental problem for us because we have landed, at least at this point, uh, in the morass that we have, primarily because we have had a materialistic, and I don't pause to say capitalistic, market-driven notions of what's more important here. Mm -hmm. And it seems that people are emphasizing
0: the material over Mm -hmm. the human. Mm -hmm.
1: Mm -hmm.
3: Professor Hobson.
0: Um, This is a great question. And much like my colleagues here articulated, um, you have this anger, you have this this psychological draining in the midst of a pandemic. Yes. and, and and that's what's different for myself um, right now in the state of Georgia. Uh, you know, we've not had adequate testing with with COVID nineteen. Um, the state of Georgia has not done what it needs to do. Uh, the federal government has been extremely uh, negligent on what needs to happen. And then you're still seeing the same pandemic problem of racism that is permeating. And, and I, I'm, I, I've been sitting here and wondering, you know, what effects can, is, will this have on my body, but what is this ha- doing to our young people? Mm-hmm. And, um, <clears throat> you know, whether you have children or not, uh, if you have young people in your family, you often think about uh, these situations. Um, myself, I have a five-year-old son, and, and you know, I, I see a lot of postings on social media that talks about, I'm a parent of a black boy, but, you know, the police are harming and killing black, girls and black women, you know, in the same manner. And the thing about it is, my son saw the, we were watching the news and he saw uh, George Floyd, he saw Ahmaud Arbor just in passing. And he began to ask questions and he adores the police. And now I'm trying to explain, he's a he's a five year old, I'm trying to explain to him that not all policemen are good people and not all of them are bad and, and all of these different things. But with this being said, you know, <clears throat> One of the things that I do notice is that uh, a lot of people uh, of all walks of life could use a really good history class. And that history class is important because if you know and understand anything about this idea of civil rights, Atlanta is, I would not argue it as the cradle of civil rights. It is one of several campaigns, but it's a different kind of campaign. And, you know, I mean, the, the legislation that comes out of Birmingham and Selma you know, the terrion that took place in Jackson, Mississippi, Little Rock, Arkansas, Dallas, oh. Texas, New Orleans, Louisiana. We, th- these are the areas. And so uh, the fact that Dr. King, you know, peace be upon his soul, uh, came from Atlanta uh, and was able to do aspects of the movement. If Dr. King were alive, he would say that he was not the leader of the movement. And so much of that, as Professor Davis stated, has been market driven. And we must know and understand that there have been tempests, and there have been outbreaks in terms of rebellion. And when we we I use the term rebellion because it represents plantation politics. And a, a riot is just this kind of outrage that comes to destruct, whereas a rebellion is really an overthrow of a system that has been oppressed.
3: Professor Hobson, let me stay with you for a moment because of something that you just said, and I anticipate emails and maybe <laughs> other sure. social media correspondence. Um, you said if Dr. King were alive today, he would say he was not the leader of the movement. And I wanna give you an opportunity to di- dissect that further for someone who might take issue with that.
0: Yeah, Dr. King was one of thousands of leaders in the movements. And we have to get a, have a real conversation around leadership and organizers. Now that, that is not a slight to Dr. King But if you study Dr. King, you would know who Vernon Johns was, the minister Mm -hmm. uh, at at Dexter Avenue, um, who who was really a grassroots organizer. And not to say that King wasn't. Um, For those, you know, I I spent a lot of time studying Atlanta in my career. Um, You know, a lot of what Dr. King took uh, or or used on a platform, some of that, some of that, I'm not going to say much of it came from John Wesley Dobbs. a lot of his speeches, Dr. King would go to John Wesley Dobbs and ask his permission if he could use John Wesley Dobbs's speeches, and they become speeches that are now associated with Dr. King. So what I'm saying is that Dr. King was one aspect of the movement, and he understood that there were other kinds of leaders.
3: Well, let's get In- into that. Let's take that further, because Atlanta Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms, along with other notables, there was... Uh, Bernice King, Killer Mike, and TI imploring those who were partaking in the destruction and looting to stop. Uh, Let's play a clip uh, of Mayor Bottoms. I wear this each and every day, and I pray over my children each and every day. So what I see happening on the streets of Atlanta is not Atlanta. This is not a protest. This is not in the spirit of Martin Luther King Jr., This is chaos. Professor Burton, I'm going to start with you. This label of Atlanta, the city too busy to hate, which actually came out of the 60s, this peaceful city of protest, does that no longer resonate across generations here in Atlanta?
4: Um, I think that Atlanta has a lot of transplants here, um, first of all. So I think a lot of times people in Atlanta talk about Atlanta as if everyone has been here. Um, you know, since uh, and and during this time period uh, that we keep referencing and and that's just not true. Um, I think the mayor uh, is attached to Atlanta. Obviously, she's from Atlanta. I think people who are from here, born and raised have a different perspective um, and, 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 and way of being and thinking and seeing Atlanta. And so for her, um, and I, you know, like Dr. Davis is talking about, you know, it's a different type of response when you, this is your hometown, this is how you see yourself, this is the, these are the people who raised you, the communities that raised you, and then you also made it to the mayor's office, right? The the mayoral place, um, which is a position of power. So uh, I don't, um, I think that what she said uh, was was salient and was important. However, I don't agree with this not being Atlanta. I'm an outsider. Let me just say that straight up. So, um, you know, what I know about Atlanta, um, even though it is the city too busy to hate, I think that's a a nice catchphrase, but (laughs) I don't know if that's the case. And I think if you talk to black folks here in Atlanta from all walks of life, they would tell you that that's not the case. And some of the things that they have gone through and continue to go through, and, you know, the socioeconomic disparities that exist here and the racial disparities here and the health disparities here, despite having these world class medical institutions, whether you talk about Morehouse School of Medicine or Emory um, you know, or the CDC even. So um, I think, again, um, one of the points I want to make today is that we have to be mindful of um, making broad statements uh, and, and characterizing this city as something that it may not have ever been for a large group of people, based on who, uh, based on their socioeconomic status for sure, and their racial status as well. And access to power. Cultural capital too, cultural capital too.
3: Professor Davis, so. I'm gonna to get to you in a moment, because based on what just Professor Burton just said, I'm gonna play a clip with part of a conversation I had with an Atlanta resident, Eva, who moved here six years ago. When did you arrive?
2: I got here probably about eight or nine. Through
3: your lens, what happened? Why did it turn from what some say was peaceful?
2: It, it was. It was very peaceful. And it went the other way when the police fired tear gas at us. When the police t- fired tear gas, it was another race that set the police car on fire. It was white people? It was white people who set the police car on fire. It was more whites out here than blacks, if believe it or not.
3: So, Professor Davis, here's someone who... Moved here about six years ago. She came to the protest. She said she got there about 8 or 9 o'clock that night. And through her lens, she said this was other people, maybe not Atlantans, who started the chaos. Professor Burden brought up that, look, Atlanta's a city of transplants. So I ask you that same question in terms of this this moniker that Atlanta's carried for decades. The city too busy to hate. And the and, and they Atlanta way. Whatever that is, because the Atlanta way can be defined, it's subjective depending on who you ask. So I'll ask you, Professor Davis, is it time that we stay away from that, those two monikers? The city too busy to hate and and this cradle of the civil rights movement and and the fact that Atlantans don't do this or Atlanta doesn't do that?
1: Well, I'll say, um, and I will defer to my brother Hobson on the specifics, but it's interesting the hyperbole people have used since I was a child. And Brother Hobson and I have had extensive conversations about this. Where I grew up, the so-called civil rights development or presence here in Atlanta was interpreted, interpreted differently based on socioeconomic location. Uh, my grandfather did not even herald certain people that Atlantans love. I won't mention their names, but we can guesstimate who they were. You know, his response was, I don't talk to those Negroes. I don't like them. Why? Because Atlanta has fundamentally been a classist environment. It's not merely racist, which it has been, but it's also extremely classist. Within it's the black
3: way. community, you're talking about oh, within the black different community
1: different. too. Yeah, you and I had this conversation one of the Martin Luther King holidays. Mm-hmm. People didn't like it, but Atlanta is extremely classist. I mean, there's certain neighborhoods we can begin to articulate or to identify. You know, people will say that's where this family grew up, and then they'll even go by family names and. No, nobody knows my family name. And I used to have to engage people. Well, who are your people? You don't know my people. Matter of fact, as Brother Hobson knows, my people uh, would not have been some that you wanted to interact with, all right, to euphemize. So the thing has to do more with it. We don't want to somehow be so hyperbolic that we lose the historical context, as my brother just referred to. We can include Atlanta in the range of Mississippi's Alabama's, and so forth, that's fine. But there's something about having to be the best. And I think Atlanta, not unlike Chicagoans and New York, I mean, come on, Brooklyn, USA, as if it were, you know, this independent entity. So I understand the disposition, but the honesty has to come forth. And on the other side, I mean, part of the difficulty of being from Atlanta and having others come in, they have been captured by this false veneer of safety and the Negro making it. So when I left Atlanta for graduate school, people would often say, oh, I might move to Atlanta. Why? Because black people know we don't own a brick downtown. So when you start talking about power or access, no, Atlanta is not what you think it is. I love Atlanta, but don't be so overwhelmingly romantic about it that you believe it's going to be the promised land. And Everybody recalls how Shuffle, was shuffled in the, one of the brief scenes. And the guy said, we're going to the promised land. He said, where is that, Cleveland? And now it's flipped the other way. People from the North now, I'm going to Atlanta. Why? Promised land. No. Racism is endemic in this country and it's to the marrow. So Atlanta cannot escape that. So if I were to say all dogs are canine, there is no exclusion. The United States of America is embedded in racist ideology, fundamentally grounded in a certain profit margin driven racism. And so Atlanta, North Georgia, can escape these things such that we would like to romanticize. No, and I love my city, but we have to be more dialectical and understand the complexity of where we are. And so our responsibility is to do our best to improve these conditions. And my last little statement is, just look at, I always tell people, look at south of Five Points versus north of Five Points. There's no reason in the world that Atlanta, my Atlanta, should still at this point underdevelop the south-southwest side past little five points, right? I mean, not little five points, but five points. You see a fundamental material difference. And now they're going to create density on the north end of Atlanta when you have all this property that's underdeveloped on the southern sides. That's fundamentally a problem.
3: Professor Hobson, you're the historian here because you've done a lot of research in the history of Atlanta as it relates to black folks, the black Mecca. So given what you all have just said, should the expectation then, or was the expectation that Friday's events, Friday's planned protests, would not morph into chaos because of this this moniker that has been on Atlanta for so long? And Chief Shields, Erica Shields, Atlanta Police Department, said we were caught off guard. So the expectation was that nothing will erupt like it does in the other cities because we don't do this here in Atlanta. But that was wrong whoever we is that was down there, Professor Hobson?
0: Yeah, so uh, I, I think that the statements of my colleagues, have they've been spot on, I mean, really spot on, which I don't have to say as much, but to add to Professor uh, Davis's comments, you know, the thing about, I, I, I am not from Atlanta. I grew up in the neighboring state of Alabama. I grew up in Selma, Alabama, home of the Voting Rights Act in 1965, Bloody Sunday, the whole nine. I, F.D. Reese was my principal growing up. Joanne Mance, Bob Mance's wife, taught me social studies. I mean, Gene Jackson was my sixth grade history teacher. But I do love this city. Mm-hmm. And I was raised to where you're honest with the things that you love. And the thing about it is, all of Atlanta's hubris as the city too busy to hate, as the Black Mecca, as hot Atlanta as, as you know, all of these different marketing strategies or, or marketing taglines, um, put so much pressure on the city of Atlanta that it doesn't allow for them to be human. If the city would really sit down and do a real history lesson, and when I say a real history lesson, not a history that appeases to the races and talk about how tolerable uh, a tolerable white business community was tolerable of black people. I'm talking about just a real conversation. We would know and understand that in 1966, there was a Summer Hill rebellion where Harold Prather was shot and killed by a police, uh, a policeman uh, in Summer Hill right next to Georgia State, right next to the Atlanta Fulton County Stadium and how, you know, things erupted there. Ivan Allen had to kind of really go and and, and, uh, they booed and hissed him and threw bottles at him. 1967, the Dixie Hill rebellion. In 1968, before King was assassinated, President Lyndon B. Johnson commissioned uh, a report that would later be known as the Kerner Report that was to help America understand why black people were rebelling in cities. Notice I'm saying rebelling, not rioting. And what comes from this, and this is, this is months before Dr. King uh, was assassinated. What happens with this is that it becomes clear that there are two Americas, one white, and one black, and they're going in different directions and how slavery and the the racial tension, the sordid racial history of the United States really undergirded, really undermined the process of black folk inequality. And how Johnson was interested in preventing this and then Dr. King's assassinated. It was a sad day. But what Ivan Allen understood better than other mayors is he understood that he had to get to King's family and he really had to get those folk in the community to really not allow for Atlanta to burn because it was King's hometown. And so this whole idea of the Atlanta way really has more to do, the way in which it's presented on the world stage really has more to do with the reason that Atlanta was the only major Black city not to erupt after Dr. King was assassinated was because they respected their most beloved son. So I don't understand why this was not a thought. What I'm saying is that we have to make sure that our elected officials have good intel and good information.
3: 52 years later, professors, and what we do know is that for many, because they've told us they've had enough as it relates to the deaths of black people at the hands of law enforcement through their lens, I want to go back to Eva for a moment because here's the other part of our conversation. So let me ask you this, and I see on your shirt, I can't breathe. Where do we go from here? Where does Atlanta go from here?
2: I say burn it down. If it was one of my three boys, I would not sit on TV and I would not ask for peace to be held. No, burn it down. They need to hear us and hear us now. They didn't want us to kneel peacefully. You know, they don't want us to come out here and protest peacefully. They don't want us to stand for us peacefully, you know, but it, it, it got to start somewhere and they got to hear us and we got to make it be heard. What's your response to someone that says, oh, burn it down. What good will that do? Burning it down would do a lot. They would start, their eyes were open. If we affect the white man's money, where well, it means something to them, you know what I'm saying? I believe that they will wake up, they will start realizing.
3: Is there any other solution though, besides, Eva, besides burning it down and, and people possibly losing their lives? Is there any other solution?
2: Start convicting these white men for killing us. The men that hide behind the badges, they're killers, they're murderers, they're human just like we are. They need to stand to the same laws that we have to stand by. I am a black mother of three black boys. Burn the city down. I'm, I'm with it. I'm with it. I'm with it. I'm tired. Burn it down.
3: So that was Eva, mother of three black boys, she told me. I would tell you there were others who felt the same way as Eva. Professor Burton, your reaction to what she had to say?
4: Uh, I think that, you know, Eva reflects the frustration that a lot of Black people have as it relates to our long-going, long, our long and ongoing uh, precarious relationship with the police departments throughout, you know, the country, really throughout the world, right, Um, as it relates to Black people. And the frustration um, of hearing people over and over again um, really focus on property and material items <laughs> as opposed to the, the reasons why folks are out here. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, what she's talking about is, um, you know, doing something, you know, her, her response is burn it down because that's the only thing that white people appear to care about, white people who are in power appear to care about. Um, because it affects their, their bottom line, right? Because, you know, they're not listening to the peaceful protest. That's why I'm just, like, incredulous over people who are like, we need to go back and protest the way we used to protest. I'm like, what are you talking about? You know, they're not listening to peaceful protests. They're not listening to the uh, legislators who are like, stop this stuff. They're not listening to the community activists who are like, stop this stuff. They're not listening to the celebrities who are like, stop this stuff. They're not listening to the academics who've been documenting and writing and documenting and writing and presenting and writing and documenting and presenting and saying, stop this stuff. Something has to be done. They're not listening to the people who represent the police departments and they're saying, hey, here are some tools that you can use in order to de escalate and this is how you work with the community and all of these things. They're not taking Advantage of listening to implementing policies that protect people um, like us, you know, that protect people who look like us, men and women. The Spelman and Morehouse student who were pulled out of the car yesterday—they didn't just pull the black boy out; they pulled the black girl out and, and pepper sprayed them, mace them, uh, you know, they tased them. Um, but they're not responding to that. So this is what happens when you don't uh, take a proactive look at um, what you need to do to really. Uh, impact and change the ways in which police departments, and I would uh, extend that to these vigilantes who think they who want to be police uh, folks, mm-hmm. and you don't arrest and prosecute and convict these folks in the same manner in which you do black folks. I could never uh, sit with my knee on my former co-worker's neck until they stop breathing and not be arrested. That would never happen. None of these gentlemen uh, could do it. Dr. Davis, Dr. Hobson, you, you can never do that sit on grace's till she expires and then you just get to go home that does not happen (laughs) that does not happen and so yeah you know she's frustrated and so like no i don't want people to burn stuff down i don't want people to destroy things um but i understand why people do it and i understand what she's saying and look what happens when they when you do it we get a police officer arrested and charged right the other three we don't know what's going to happen to Um, But things start moving, things start happening, people start moving with some deliberate speed and doing what they should have done beforehand.
3: Uh, Professor Davis, your reaction to what Eva had to say?
1: It is thoroughly understood. We have a failure. First of all, let's back up. Part of our response is going to be your political, social political platform, and that is, do you believe that larger society has an obligation or... A more conservative view that the individual must stand on her own and provide for herself and acquire the resources needed to mitigate these types of forces alone i am on the former side and that is i think that there is a responsibility and i say that to lead to the notion we have no mitigating structures to undermine the absence of knowledge so that pure ignorance of what else is there which we know to be a false You know dichotomy these aren't the only two choices but when you're not afforded people the opportunity to see other possibilities to hear other possibilities which leads to a critique of our education system we're anti-intellectual in this regard so brother hobson has already pointed out there's an ignorance with respect to historical context and and, and historical method and how you're going to understand yourself in light of context but then you have the added feature how is it that we believe that you can change the hearts and minds of a people when you have parochially focused on STEM. And I'm going to take it there because the problem is we want to, I would say intentionally cultivate engineers and scientists and think that you become a humane human being by breathing air. That's intentional. We have to work on ourselves. So part of it has to be what type of investment will we make on humane letters? How are we going to understand who we are? History, philosophy, religion, literature. These are the things that animate who we are as animals, but a different sort of animal. And you see the sort of diminution of these of these areas in academic and social environments. No longer do we turn to experts. Anybody with a microphone can give an opinion, no foundations. I say all this securitously to our point. This is just standing out there. Guess what? What else is there, right? And the thing is, all three of us professors could tell her, listen, sister, they're good, they got insurance. So you're not hurting them, but I understand if you were to burn my house down, that might create some consternation on my part. But to burn down anything in Phipps Plaza, they're good. They are fine. They already been overcharging anyway, so they have enough profit to cover it even if they didn't
4: have insurance.
1: So they're fine. The more the difficulty is, trying to get our brothers and sisters to understand I know you're, you're inclined to think that you're undermining their economic integrity, but you're not, right? So how do we enforce this? Our educational structures must be clear and coherent and well-structured such that these students understand how basic economics work, how social forces infringe upon our humanity in ways that we oftentimes stifle in our understanding of our commitment to others, et cetera. And so this sister the stands there and says what I've heard students and others say for a long time. You won't listen to me, I'll burn it down. I know why you believe that. But guess what? At the end of the day, they're just gonna get more funding. I mean, think about it in 08. Quickly, in 08, everybody thought, well, the market has turned. Every corporation came back hotter than they ever had. Insurance companies were were given powers that we never imagined. You deregulated, you kept giving them loans, you kept these industries are covered. It's the individual citizens. And I don't know anything about Main Street. I'll just say Stewart Avenue because Main Street ain't where I grew up. The idea that you're going to cover people who are impoverished, who've been undermined by the development of a city, my beloved Atlanta, but you undermine the integrity of areas and people who've been needing you for a long time. So now she's people who come here and finally find out that all that glitters is not just not gold, it's not even silver. And you're stuck now because your assumption was I thought it was better. No, we're in the U.S. It's the same animal, you know, different day, different time, but same animal. So this sister, I would love to tell her if I could, I'm saying, listen, I understand the animus that you have against this structure, but the best thing we can do is try to somehow develop, because everybody, all would political scientists say, all politics is local. So you start with your home, start with your community. You build out from there, because that's the type of change we need. We obviously know nobody's coming to our rescue. There is no more super Negro, no, not gonna happen. Never was, but it becomes more apparent because people are still waiting. Who's gonna speak next? And I've seen it on CNN, who's gonna speak up? you speak up. I did an interview with this um, non-Black sister the other day, and she asked a question about, well, what are you all gonna do? It's not our responsibility. You've infringed upon my right to think clearly, right? You undermine my growth socially, politically, economically. So as Malcolm said, his second go around, don't ask me what you can do. No, go and talk to other people like yourself. You all have these meetings and talk to each other. Why do we feel this way? Why do we treat these people this way? And maybe you're going to have to have a class distinction as well, because I do believe there's some white brothers and sisters who care. The difficulty is getting that 1% to somehow engage and care enough, because that's the problem, right? The 1% isn't just the individual, it's corporations as well. And we keep losing that. So we oftentimes mention the name of the CEOs and the, the founders, name the companies. And I won't do that on your show to protect, you know, but there are names of companies here in Atlanta that have not done right by these communities. And they have the financial wherewithal to help develop these
3: communities. Well, Professor Davis, as you know, on on this program, the whole purpose is it's a platform for constructive dialogue. So that's up to you. But before we go to break. (laughs) Before we go to break. I'll just leave it. I'll leave
1: it.
3: Professor Hobson, I I do want you to, as we go to break, I do want you to to comment on, on Eva, mother of three boys.
0: So... I understand Eva's frustration and even rage because she's thinking about a system that has hurt, is harmed, it's maimed, it's it's done so for the entire experience of black, brown, uh, women, uh, marginalized communities all together. So I understand it. Um, But if I'm correct, Eva, was the woman who moved here six years ago?
3: Mm-hmm. Correct. From Cincinnati.
0: I'm uh, mm-hmm. Cincinnati, mm-hmm. and Ilya, uh, Professor Davis, is an Atlanta native. And to Professor Davis, he could hear burn down my city that I love, the community that I love, even uh, Stewart Avenue, you know, Main Street, Simpson Road, whatever. But but that's what can be heard, and you can already see that. The polemic nature of that. But I'm reminded of of this. Uh, I cut my teeth on doing Atlanta history because I am the biggest outcast and Goody Mob fan in the world. That's really what <laughs> turned me on. That and in the song Get Up, Get Out on mm-hmm. Outcast's first album, uh, Andre Benjamin, known as Andre 3000 in his later years, states, they tell me that I need to get out and vote, huh? Why? And nobody black running but white folks. So why I got to register? I'm thinking of better stuff to do with my time. What we have to know and understand is that there is a segment of this population that just do not believe in American democracy because American democracy has failed them. Is any good warrior, most warriors, the trait of a really good warrior is that they seek peace at all costs because if it goes across the line, they hold nothing back. And I'm saying that to say you must have intellect, you must have strategy, you can't just jump out.
3: And when we come back, our conversation will continue. All this week, our conversations are dedicated to this past weekend's protests, the aftermath, and what's next Atlanta. This is Closer Look.
0: Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture.
3: This week, we'll have conversations about 21st century protesting. Where is Atlanta's next wave of leadership? Where should it come from? We'll talk about voting, and we'll talk about race reconciliation. Of those topics, Professor Burton, through your lens, and again, 21st century protesting, Atlanta's next wave of leadership, voting, and race reconciliation, what is crucial in when we talk about what's next for Atlanta and actionable outcomes based on the outrage that that transpired over the weekend.
4: Um, I think that Atlanta uh, will rebound, obviously. Um, I think Atlanta uh, has great academics, as you can see here on your show. Um, that are also com- committed to and part of community. I think that's something that, um, especially your black academics, uh, most black academics I know are members of black organizations. They work closely with the NAACP, uh, Urban League and things of that nature. Those are traditional, what we call traditional um, civil rights organizations, as well as work with some of the newer and the younger uh, organizations, some of the tech organizations, if you will. Um, I think that um, we have to figure out how we get Atlanta to be, um, <laughs> let me rephrase that, how we get Georgia, <laughs> the state of Georgia, which is really to me um, the black eye <laughs> that, mm-hmm. of a state um, and its leadership to shift so that Atlanta stands a better chance of surviving um, this onslaught of white supremacy. Um, that never went away, but it's just hyper-visible um, right now, um, you know, with the, that person we have in the, uh, in the White House. Um, so I think that it's going to start at, at, with voting. You know, I think that um, Stacey Abrams, Fair Fight Georgia, if you need some place to put your money or your time, um, we need to be looking at that. Voter suppression is real here. Um, we've got to be looking at the mishandling. You know, that's what Dr. Dobson said at the beginning at the top of the show. Um, of this pandemic and really getting some leadership in place mm-hmm. um, that is going to speak to um, the needs of Black people throughout the state, not just here in Atlanta with our wonderful schools and or- civic organizations and all that thing uh, that we have going on here, but throughout the state of Georgia. Um, I think the leadership is going to come from the young people. It always comes from the young people um, that are training now, that are out in the protests and have have the, have the the right hearts and the right minds and have Mm -hmm. the information behind them. Um, And I think a lot of the leadership is going to come out of the tech community, honestly. Um, I'm not saying that we don't have, you know, I believe in humanistic inquiry. You know, I'm a professor of film and media. Um, Why the tech industry? That's very interesting. Mm -hmm. Because the tech industry, in my mind, is where you get the most movement. Um, You're able to reach the largest number of people. Mm -hmm. And so many young people live in that space. Like for us, you know, people in our age group, You know, we do it all. We get to pay. We still subscribe to the paper. We still watch television. We, you know, we're on our phones. That's why I was like, oh, yeah, I got to cut this off. (laughs) You know, Uh, we're doing all of these things. But young people live exclusively in the tech world. Um, Many of them do. And so I think that they have very interesting ways of connecting people, very interesting ways of organizing folks. Um, If we can get away from this misinformation, you know, that Mark Zuckerberg is committed to supporting. Um, while you have the the gentleman over at Twitter who's like, ah, we got to start doing something because this is getting out of hand. So you're going to see that that war is the next war, right? The battle over information. Um, If we win that, then I think that you can use um, technology and activism uh, together in order to create the change that these young folks need to see um, and be a part of as we go forward uh, while we do what we've been doing and hopefully do it better.
3: Professor Davis, moving forward. And and it may be a topic that I haven't listed, but 21st century protesting, Atlanta's next wave of leadership, voting, race reconciliation. Where does Atlanta begin?
1: Well, I will refer back to good brother Du Bois. The fundamental problems here of color, hair and bone, as Du Bois likes to say in his conservation of races, is still a problem in Atlanta, and it can't be fixed, even if we were to stop what's transpiring downtown right now. It just doesn't go away. And We've had the tendency to assume that out of, out of sight, out of mind, changes the social economic and racial conditions, and it does not. And so I am, again, arguing for a return, if I can even say that, to humanistic studies. We have to intentionally work on being better human beings. It can't be by accident. So whatever change we develop, because I don't have a panacea and some... You know, wand to wave the healing of America, but I know that it begins with studying what does it mean to intentionally develop a more humane and more disciplined caring structure. Right? We have to care about caring.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: It can't be an accident. We must care about caring. I always tell my students, I know what you're willing to do based on what you tell me you care about, and we don't care about race. We don't care about. Uh, Bridging the economic gap, you know, there have been reports that Atlanta is one of the worst in the country, if not the worst, in our economic divide. We can't intellectually, socially, economically move forward unless we change the lessons. I mean, moving forward in time is simple. We can't control that, right? We're going to keep moving in time, depending on your philosophy of time. But the point has to do, when we say, what do we do moving forward? The assumption is certain types of direct action will be employed to help change the minds and the hearts of people. That's what we really mean. So what is it going to take to change our our views of one another? How do we then incorporate this into the larger social system? That's the difficulty. And I'm making an argument. We must do better in our educational structures, right? We have to inform people early. We're not indoctrinating. We're trying to, again, back to the sister Eva earlier, we're trying to give more possibility, more alternatives. So whatever decision you make is not parochial based on I only had choices A through D versus all the rest of the alphabet that I should have been choosing from. Mm -hmm. And so as we move forward, I think one thing is going to have to change, and all of us are representative, the so-called old and new must work together. We've had this antagonism for years. I don't listen to old people, old people don't listen to young people. We really need to work together. Back to Hobson's point, the issue is you can't have historical context unless you have somebody who knows not just through, you know, formal education, but existentially sit down and talk to somebody. And then on the other side, I must be able to sit down with somebody young and get some sense of how the world is structured for them. Because again, we have bequeathed that world to them and how they reinterpret it comes out in ways that we oftentimes push against, right? So we give it to them, they interpret it, give it back to us and we argue about it, right? Selfishness, self-centeredness, this notion of invulnerability, which leads them to walk around the streets, as you said earlier, without masks. Because what? I'm fine. What about everybody? Uh, I'm good, right? And so my point is we have to interact with one another in more dynamic ways and not assume that one, one answer or one approach is going to solve it. We are in a complex mixture and it needs as many resources as possible.
3: Professor Hobson, I'll give you the last word in terms of moving forward. When we talk about what next for Atlanta, how do you see it?
0: So um, when you frame the question, I mean, there's so many things going through my mind, but I'm gonna make this succinct. Oftentimes when you talk about local politics and particularly progression, uh, the Honorable Mayor Maynard Jackson's name is brought forth. And uh, Maynard Jackson was a special kind of statesman in terms of his vision I mean he saw new uh and innovative ways of governing and one of the things that there were four things or five things that Maynard Jackson did that made him beloved within the black community and there were some things that he did that made him questionable but there were five things that he did the first was his affirmative action of course you know expanding martyr and, and building the airport but the creation of the uh, neighborhood planning units that really included citizens and also the way in which he framed um, how if police brutality took place in the city how he would have a special hand in making sure that that officer was prosecuted meaning that the, the problem with police brutality is that it, it violates the 14th amendment which grants equal protection and due process under the law you're supposed to have an opportunity to go and have your day in court but if you're the the judge and jury and you kill and maim right there, you don't have that. We we need leadership <clears throat> that is willing to step out there uh, in a very clear kind of way and say any kind of police involved incident needs to be investigated and it can be on the community level. It would be great to see an American president that signs an executive order. We We need very strict laws because the police have power. I mean, when I was growing up, it was often said that the police were the biggest gang on the street. But what I've done to try to commit myself is, I am a critical professor. I believe in critical knowledge, which, which will produce critical citizens. Sometimes I'll take the other stance with my students to get them to think on the other side. And what I've done is uh, I teach a course every fall, the history of African-Americans in Georgia. And that course has become a think tank for my students who go out, do Gallup polls, to do all of the fundamental research to identify the issues that are really um, hurting Black communities, and then they do full reports, and I offer the students' reports as a think tank to the state legislature. I'll offer that to the city. What I'm trying to do is to create the next group of leaders, but I want them to be leaders. And you know, the the thing about leadership is it's not easy, and you must be prepared to to uh, you must be prepared for resistance. Uh, I am an old football player. And one of the things I always know is when you step out on the field, there are 11 people trying to stop what you're trying to do. So that's a part of the game. And so with this being said, um, how I want to move forward in terms of uh, racial reconciliation, in terms of protest, is I, I use my platform as a professor in the public to really foster these kinds of conversations, to allow for better political literacy, to allow for us to know and understand how the system works And if we understand how the system works, then we can really find the loopholes and work things in our favor. The old people where I'm from will say, in order to bend the rules, you first must know the rules.
3: From Georgia State University, Maurice Hobson, Associate Professor in African-American Studies and the author of The Legend of the Black Mecca, Politics and Class and the Making of Modern Atlanta. And Singer Burton, Professor and Multimedia Journalist, who's also the Co-Director of Film and Media Management at Emory University. Ilya Davis, director, new students and transition programs, and professor of philosophy at Morehouse College. Thank you all for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Professor Hobson, did you just call all of us old? Listen,
0: listen. Are we part of that generation now now where they 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 don't they don't listen to us? (laughs) Listen, getting old is a privilege.
3: I appreciate y'all for taking the time for kickstarting this week's series of conversations. Thank you all.
0: Thank you. Thank you, Sister Rose.
3: That's it for this edition of Closer Look, which is produced by Grace Walker and LaShawn Hudson. Our engineer is Shelley Knavey. If you missed any of today's program, it's online at wabe.org slash And of course, you can listen to Closer Look weeknights at 8 p.m. And listen whenever you want, because Closer Look is now available as a podcast. Just visit NPR One or your favorite streaming app and subscribe. This is 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in depth, long form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Local, state, national politics, WABE and NPR have the coverage you need.